So this is really bad form, but my name is Roger Wagner, not Richard. Richard Wagner is the famous arch-pagan of the 19th century, and while in some ways I wouldn't mind being confused with him. Um, so this morning we're going to um, be looking at the opening verses of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So let me just read verses 1 through 3. Probably don't need that much amplification because I tend to speak up and I don't want to sound like the mighty Oz up here. This is God's word. Let's hear it with faith. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you gave this word to the church through your apostle, and now we ask as your church to make us receptive to what it has to say to us. We are, most of us, church people. We know the lingo. We know the categories. We rejoice in the realities that they represent. And yet we can become sloppy and, and lax and presumptuous uh, too easily. So forgive us for that and stir us up to truly lay hold of what you have to say for us this morning and apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're not already down now, hardly see you people. I assume you're all out there. Make noises every once in a while. Well, it's an honor for me to be here and to fill in for Pastor Brian. I've known him for several years through the Christian School Connection. Uh, he was headmaster, of course, of Kuiper Academy, and I was the chairman of the board of directors of Covenant Christian School down in Chula Vista, and so our paths would cross occasionally. Um, Kuiper lasted a couple of more years than uh, Covenant Christian School. We were sad to see both of those important institutions uh, go, but God has his ways. And then it got kind of reconnected with uh, Brian through a mutual friend earlier this year and have had lunch a couple of times. And you know how lunch is. Pretty soon somebody's inviting you to fill in the pulpit. So I'm happy to be here. Here we have the uh, salutation to Paul's letter, the first of two that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And if you know Paul's writings, you know that a salutation is never simply a formality. It's always jam-packed full of very, very important ideas, not elaborated, not developed, but there in seed form. Uh, back in the olden days when I was in junior high school and we were learning to type on old Remington typewriters, clack, 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 you got muscles on your fingers like this because it took so much to put. You who uh, operate on uh, laptop computers, you have no idea the torture 
typing used to be. And then we would, so we would practice typing form letters, friendly letters, business letters, this kind of letter. And so there were certain formulas for the introduction of a different kind of, of letter. And Paul's uh, introductions, his salutations, conform to similar um, letters in outside of the New Testament. But as I say, here Paul, in a very few words, really lays out the foundation of his understanding of the gospel, the good news concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, and then its implications for the lives of God's people. Each one of us can learn some things from these very brief words, and that's my plan this morning, just to unpack this a little bit for our edification this morning. He speaks of the sovereign grace of God, grace to you and peace. That's the foundation for everything that is ours as believers. Um, a grace from God, a goodness from God, a generosity, a kindness that are all initiated by himself and sovereign in their power, in their accomplishment. And then that sovereign grace uh, bears fruit in our lives. And so it is grace and peace in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. For Paul, it is our union with Christ our union with Christ before the foundation of the world as God saw us and loved us in his Son. What a wondrous mystery of grace. And then our union with Christ as he came to be the second Adam, the, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman who would represent us as his people. And so we are in him. And then when we are wrought upon by the Holy Spirit, we are united with Christ existentially, effectively, as we are joined to him. And so it's always in Christ that the grace of God comes to us as sinners. And that union with Christ, of course, is what Jesus was referring to when he used that wonderful metaphor of the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's grace, but it's a grace that bears fruit in the life of us, God's people. So we think, first of all, for a few minutes about this fountainhead of redemptive grace. Grace to you and peace, Paul writes. That's the starting point. Uh, he uses this same uh, language in the second letter to the Thessalonians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It appears in others of his letters and in those of other apostles that wrote, like Peter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Or John, the beloved apostle, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. What is grace? Well, it's often characterized by that little catchphrase, God's riches at Christ's expense. This is God who is looking for people to bless. It flows out of God, and that is the foundation, the, the fountainhead of our redemption. It's free. It is mercy to those who deserve judgment. 
And salvation flows then from the character of God. God is love. God is grace. God is generous, overflowing kindness. That's why he created in the first place. He didn't need anything outside of himself. He had perfect fellowship within the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of the mutuality of that relationship. But he created a world that he might manifest his goodness to that world. He created human beings so that he might show them his goodness and kindness. And after Adam and Eve fell, he didn't withdraw or incinerate the world, but he continued to show grace, but now particularly a redemptive grace, a healing grace, a restorative grace to those who not only don't deserve God's favor, but actually deserve the opposite of that, condemnation and eternal judgment. And so when we think about our relationship to God, we have to start with that assumption that our relationship to him is established by his initiative, it's sustained by his ongoing grace and mercy, and there's not a lick of human effort involved, not a bit of human merit involved. We are recipients, as uh, Horatius Bonar says in his wonderful hymn, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what I deserve, but what Christ has done for me. As sinners, we deserve only judgment. As sinners, we are both legally condemned Uh, We have what Francis Schaeffer called true moral guilt. We're not talking about guilt feelings that can attach to anything, but we stand guilty before a holy judge and rightly and justly condemned. But then we're also corrupted, hopelessly corrupted in our own nature. Our bodies are diseased, they weaken and die, and inwardly we are rebels against God, corrupted in our thinking, in our wills in our desires and emotions. We are wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. And so we are needy people. And Paul is aware of that. And he is teaching this pretty young church. The Thessalonian church hadn't been around very long after he planted it. If there is any hope for us, any help for us. It must come from outside. It has to come from the very God that we despised and rejected in Adam's sin and that we continue to rebel against by nature. And that hope, that help is there in the grace of God. Is that how you instinctively view yourself? The Pharisees didn't. They had plenty of God's revelation given to them through Moses, through the law. And they came to believe that they really weren't like anybody else. They deserved their status before God. And lest we be too quick to condemn the Pharisees, there's a little Pharisee in every one of us trying to get out. That most often shows itself when we judge others. I'm glad I am not like fill in the blank. But you are like 
fill in the blank. We are lost. And so that sense of always standing before God, a couple of weeks ago I preached on the passage from Luke to my congregation, the parable about the, the publican and the, or the tax collector and the Pharisee. And that Pharisee who wouldn't, uh, that uh, tax collector who wouldn't even look up to God but beat upon his breast. And what did he say? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That posture of humility, that deep sense of need, that brokenness before God, it's what Isaiah the prophet experienced as he records it for us in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. He saw the Lord in all of his holiness, his majesty, his glory. And what did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. And how did he know that? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. So this converted Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, never ever again in his whole life long lost sight of the grace of God, the free, generous, unmerited mercy of God. And that really has to be the starting point for any authentic Christian experience. Day by day, you need to think of yourself. We talk a lot these days about identity. Well, our identity is fallen human beings, rebels by nature, who have then been the recipients of the free grace and mercy of God. And that should make every prayer we breathe, first and foremost, a prayer of thanksgiving. That is the great benediction, grace to you and peace from God our Father. But this grace is a fruitful grace. And so Paul goes on to explain how it produces effects that transform the whole of our human nature, affects our thoughts and our affections, our will, our priorities, our plans and our actions. The first fruit of that divine grace in action is peace. Grace to you and peace. The Hebrew word shalom, which we sometimes use in our own uh, speech, even though we don't speak Hebrew ordinarily, but, but that word has a, has a nice sound to it, and it seems bigger than simply the English word peace, which more or less means the, the cessation of hostilities. You know, two nations go to war, then there's an armistice, there's a peace treaty, and so they stop fighting against one another, and that we call peace. But the biblical idea of peace is much bigger than that. It really has to do with putting the broken world of humanity back together again, individually and corporately, healing it, restoring it, refreshing and renewing it. And that human flourishing individually and collectively is what the Bible talks about as peace. And the focus of that, of course, is that the estrangement between the sinner and God, because of our sin against God, has been taken away. And we have been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. Through the blood of Jesus, God has made peace between himself and us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, 
God reconciles both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Or again in Colossians, through Jesus... God worked to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' death as propitiation, God, uh, Jesus bore the wrath of God and he, and he eliminated the hostility, God's hostility to us even more than our hostility to him and has reconciled us now through the forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, this means the healing of the whole sin-ravaged creation, that beautiful picture of the messianic kingdom that we have in Isaiah chapter 11, where the lamb and the lion will lie down together and the child will play at the adder's den and there won't be any hurting or destroying, or that vision in Revelation chapter 20 where there's no more tears, nor sorrow, nor sighing, for the first things have passed away. That's this hope of cosmic peace, the healing of the whole creation. As Adam dragged the creation into judgment with his sin, so the last Adam will pull the creation out from under judgment. And as Paul says in Romans 8, that will mean the resurrection of our bodies. I've had the bittersweet. The death of Christians is always bittersweet, sometimes more on the bitter side, sometimes on the sweeter side, often depending on the age. But three of our longtime members at Bayview have gone to be with the Lord this year. And just on Friday, I did a graveside service for one of them and had occasion to remember again that it is certainly a blessing that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, but that's not the end of the story. When Jesus returns, he will raise our corruptible bodies from death itself, and we will be whole, body and soul, in the glory of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. As Abram Kuyper wrote, the object of the work of redemption is not limited to the salvation of individual sinners, but extends itself to the redemption of the world and to the organic reunion of all things in heaven and on earth under Christ as their original head. The final outcome of the future, foreshadowed in the Holy Scriptures, is not the merely spiritual existence of saved souls, but the restoration of the entire cosmos when God will be all in all under the renewed heaven on the renewed earth. That's the hope that we'll talk about again in a moment. So that's the first fruits of God's grace, but there are others. Here Paul mentions faith, love, and hope that very familiar triad that Paul works into uh, so many sections of his word, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13. These three things are foundational, faith, hope, and love. Now the order is slightly different, but the same idea. He gives thanks 
when he remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Just to remind ourselves briefly, what is faith? Well, faith is that positive response to the message of the gospel, that good news concerning the coming of God's eternal Son into the world as Messiah to bring redemption not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. We hear that message. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ that is proclaimed to us. And so whether it's through personal evangelism, whether it's from the nurture of Christian parents in the home, whether it's uh, sitting down in a rescue mission and having to listen to a message before you get your soup, however it comes to us, faith is hearing and understanding and laying hold of the Christ who is offered to us in the gospel. And by this faith, then, we submit to the authority of God as it's expressed in his word. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that, that we believe everything the Bible says because of God's authority speaking in the Bible, and then we respond appropriately to the promises, we embrace the promises. To the commands, we obey the commands. To the warnings, we tremble at and heed those warnings. But the core of saving faith, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ and Christ alone. And so faith always comes first in Paul's thinking as the grace of God these graces are manifest in us. But it's not alone. There's love as well. Biblical love is not simply a, a feeling of affection. It is a commitment to give. It may or may not be attended by particular affection. After all, we're called to love our enemies. Kind of hard to feel affectionate about your enemies, but you can still love them whether you feel like it or not. And so the pattern, again, is God's love for us. God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son. Or Paul writes that the life I now live by faith in the Son of God is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When the Bible commands us to love, it's commanding us to give. And the pattern is God's own love for the undeserving, for the unlovely. God commends his love to us, writes Paul, in that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were estranged from God, Christ died for the ungodly. And of course, Jesus' own self-sacrificial devotion is the hallmark of Christian love. He talks about a new commandment. Well, the commandment to love is an Old Testament commandment. What makes it new is that last phrase, as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. And then he mentions hope. Our faith has a forward-looking dimension, if you will, and that's where faith and hope uh, kind of coalesce. I believe in God now in light of the past and the present, and I hope in God for that which is promised in the future. 
we look through the lenses of the sovereignty of God over all things, whether we're thinking about our own individual lives, and of course hope comes into play, doesn't it, when we are discouraged, when we're defeated, when we're facing difficulties, frustrations, and fears, that's when hope comes alongside and blesses us because we remember the character of God, the unchangeableness of his goodness and mercy. That is the foundation then. And then he makes these promises for us, and we can trust that despite appearances, those promises will be fulfilled because of who God is. Those, that wonderful verse from Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That from a prophet who also announces the inevitability of the coming judgment of exile. There's going to be chastening in the short term, but God's long-term promise for his people is for good, to give us a future and a hope. In particular, in this letter, or the two letters to the Thessalonians, that hope in the future is directed toward the second coming of the Lord, the parousia, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these graces in your life, faith, love, hope, are evidences of the reality of the Spirit's work of regeneration in your heart because these are not human productions. We don't produce faith. We do believe, but it's a gift of God through the regenerating work of the Spirit. We don't by nature love, but God sheds abroad his love in our hearts so that we experience and it, and it overflows from us into the lives of those around us. And we certainly cannot generate hope out of our own limited, finite understanding. But again, it's a gift of God. These are graces that come to us. And they change the entire orientation of your life as a believer. I talked about that humble sense of absolute dependence upon the grace and the mercy of God. That certainly is foundational. But you should also see faith and love and hope manifesting itself in your life every moment of every day. And these graces are cultivated as we read God's word, as we pray, as we worship and celebrate, as we assemble together and do all the one anothering, that's all designed to build up these graces in our lives. But they're not only graces, they are active virtues that are aspects of the Christian life. And here Paul uh, underscores that by the way he describes these things. It is the labor, uh, the work of faith, the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope that he underscores. It's very, very important that we realize that this isn't something where you just let go and let God and God will carry you along on the billowing waves of faith and hope and love. They involve strenuous activity on our part and it's that strenuousness that these descriptors underscore for us here in this passage. And we'll round up our uh, exposition this morning by thinking for a few moments of these descriptors. The work of faith, 
Now, right off the bat, if you're a true blue Protestant, you might go, ooh, wait a minute, because you're told, no, it's faith or works, work or faith, and never the two shall meet. It's like putting the same poles of the, of the magnet together, and they're supposed to push apart. And some people live in those terms. To the degree it's faith, it has no working, and to the degree it's working, it has, it's no faith. But the Bible doesn't put it that way. And here Paul brings them as closely together as imaginable. It is the work of faith. And this word ergu is a, uh, one that's commonly used of, of physical labor, of doing your work-a-day work, whether it's as a student or a housewife or a building contractor or a lawyer or a preacher. There's a lot of work involved, and this is the work of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is much more than merely assenting to a series of propositions. It involves that, but it's much more. It's a warm personal commitment to God that is life transformative. I don't remember too much about myself before I became the partner of my wife. Uh, we just had our 52nd anniversary, but then we reminded each other that we were going steady for seven years before that. So, you know, what's left of my life beyond that wasn't worth worrying about. But once I met her, once I loved her, once I was committed to her, once we became married and we lived 50 years of life together, I'm not the same person that I was before. I couldn't be the same person. So how could we possibly be unchanged by coming into a personal relationship, very much like marriage, between ourselves and the living God who has redeemed us by his grace? Habakkuk said, and it's echoed by the Apostle Paul, the just, the righteous, will live by faith. Now, we often reduce living to being saved by faith. We are saved by faith, that's true, but faith becomes a lifestyle for the people of God. We live and move and have our being in this faith in God. Faith involves thinking through the gospel and bringing our minds and our wills into line with it. And it's a lifetime adventure. It is to grow in faith. And it brings radical and pervasive change in how we live. Indeed, it was for these good works that God created us in Christ Jesus. Paul makes it very explicit in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. The idea of a, a poem, poema is the Greek word, so an, an artistic creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is not justification by works. There's no merit in view here, but rather, as Paul says in Galatians, this is faith working through love. Then he goes on to talk about the labor of love. Here it gets even better. This is not just work. This is work that wears you out. Uh, for me now at 74, there's a lot more work that wears me out than didn't. Um, and we're packing up to move east after I retire in October. And so I'm 
packing books and lifting book boxes into storage and things like that. And I, every time I have to move my library physically, I wish I had been a, you know, like a automobile aficionado, something with wheels. So when you're moving your hobby from one place to another, you don't have to carry the load. But anyway, so I'm in a sort of a permanent state of sore shoulders and, and if I move six boxes a day, I'm, I'm worn out. It's fatiguing, and that's the word that's used here. Labor that makes you tired. Now think about that. That kind of fatiguing labor attached to love? Isn't love something that happens to you? Isn't love something that comes spontaneously springing out of the core of your being? Well, sometimes, but that's more likely affection than love. But this kind of love that we described a moment ago, love for the unlovely, love for the undeserving, love for our enemies as well as our friends, sometimes wears you out. Some of you perhaps are caregivers for elderly parents, perhaps a parent suffering from dementia, and you know how exhausting that is physically exhausting, emotionally exhausting. Or to find ways to be a blessing to others around you. It can be just that challenging, just that difficult. Now again, the pattern is God's active love for us. He sent his son. The son in turn sacrificed himself. You think about Jesus agonizing in the garden as he contemplated what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. He sweat drops of blood. But he sweat. This is fatiguing labor to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And to face that cross and everything that it was going to mean for him, not just in physical suffering, but enduring the wrath of God that we deserve, Jesus certainly didn't take the easy way out, and your love can't take the easy way out either. Many of us are willing to love a little bit if it doesn't take too much effort, but pretty soon, especially if it's not properly appreciated, we just say, well, that's it, I've, I've done my bit. No, this kind of love labors even to the point of fatigue with great exertion. It's interesting that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul alludes to this kind of love among the Macedonian churches. Philippi and Thessalonica were in the region called Macedonia. And when Paul's collecting an offering to take to the hungry saints in Jerusalem, the, uh, the Corinthians, who of course were spiritual giants, they knew it and everybody else should know it, they were a bit sluggish in putting this offering together. So Paul has to kind of goose them along a little bit, and he does that by referring to these churches in Macedonia. And he says, the grace of God, notice again the language, here's God's grace in these churches has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Sometimes when there's an offering to be collected and I have to drum up a little extra generosity on the part of some of the people, I go to the people that I think can afford it. And every once in a while, somebody who I'm pretty sure can't afford it begs for the opportunity to participate. That's the way the Macedonian churches were. They were enduring persecution on the scene, and yet when they heard about the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish brothers in Jerusalem, they didn't want to be left out of this generosity, this kindness, this goodness. So think about your love. Does it look for objects? God's love looks for objects, looks for opportunities, gets really creative about how to help. If all it is in us is the willingness to help if we're asked, that's not good enough. This has to be a laborious love, a love that sweats. And then finally, a steadfastness of hope. We could say persevering, continuing in the same direction for a long, long time. Oftentimes, we think about hope again in kind of the Hebrews as well. They're called to patiently wait, but the waiting is an active waiting, not a passive waiting. In one of his many wonderful books, Jerry Bridges asked the question, what does it take to stop you? When we're pursuing the lives of disciples, when we are thinking about living ethically, holy lives in a corrupt and deceiving and, and false generation, or when we're trying to make a relationship work, think of a, uh, of a husband and wife who hit a really rough patch circumstantially, and maybe both of them are thinking, this is just too hard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off, I'm going to give up, I'm going to quit. What does it take to stop us? Do we put our head down and, and keep persevering? picture that always comes to mind is some of those running backs in football that are going to get through that line if it kills them and they hit the line and it's closed up so legs still churning they're backing up and they're hitting it again and backing up and hitting it again until finally they break through that's hope because of the promises of God the victory is assured so we shouldn't just hit the front line and lay down I can't get through. Persevering, steadfast hope. Now, these Thessalonians were already manifesting these qualities in their congregational life. And that only a, after only a few months. And that's why Paul is commending them. He is thankful when he remembers that they, uh, that they are exhibiting these things. And he continues then to pray, as he says twice later in the letter, that there would be more and more and more. Now, you are, for the most part, I don't know you one-on-one, -on -one, so maybe there's a new Christian here, maybe there's a non-Christian here, certainly there are some younger and some older, but you 
You've heard most of this in one form or another over and over and over again. Are you growing? Or are you, as we like to say, plateaued? Plateaued is a nice word for I'm not going anywhere. Or maybe you've labored in the church for years and years and years, and now you're a gray hair like me, and you say, well, I did my bit. Now it's time for those young people to step up and and do their part. We want to finish our course strongly, pressing on in faith and hope and love until God finally calls us home. This uh, year, not to get sickeningly autobiographical, but this will be 40 years for me at Bayview. It'll be 50 years for me in ordained ministry in November. And my first church, I became the pastor after the pastor who was then my age now. He was 74, and he seemed so old because I was 24. And he retired, so that was a slot then, and I was called to fill that pulpit. And in his retirement, he went on to plant a church in Texas, and then he went on to plant another church in Michigan, and then God stopped him with a heart attack. But he kept on, he persevered, he continued. That's the call that God has to us. That will give you occasion to give thanks for one another and give you occasion to pray for one another. And, I, you know, if your church is like ours, uh, what do we mostly pray about? Well, somebody needs a job. Somebody is going to have surgery. Somebody has chronic arthritic pain. Somebody this, somebody that. You need to pray this kind of prayer for one another, that your lives and your congregation will be filled with faith and love and hope and that that fruit of grace will produce virtue in you. Commitments to work and to work hard, to sweat and to endure and persevere so that you can be the kind of church that our Lord Jesus rejoices in. But again, to remind ourselves where we began, all of this comes out of the fountainhead of God's grace to us. That's where it begins so that the praise and the glory ultimately might go to him. No church can grow or flourish or extend itself unless these attributes are characteristic of our corporate life as a congregation and our individual lives and our families and each one of us growing in these graces as those graces then produce fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, it is you that administers God's grace in our lives and bears this fruit. They are fruit of the Spirit. And so we ask that you would apply this word to our hearts and prepare us to grow more and more in faith and love and hope in this active, aggressive, persevering form. Lord, you know that we can easily become weary in well-doing. We can easily become discouraged, frustrated, disappointed. But we pray that your grace would overwhelm all of those kinds of considerations 
and help us to be this kind of church. Lord, you were making the Thessalonians into this kind of church within just weeks after Paul brought the gospel to them. Our churches have been around much longer, but we need that same infusion of your grace and your mercy. So we ask for it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.